Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And this time we'll be looking at the world of custom sneakers, the commerce of Irish traditional music. Rob Long will be teaching us how to laugh and Maurice Gohan finally sees there might be a point in other people. But we begin in Custy's Music Shop in Ennis. Yes, it may have taken a minute, but the 1990s project to turn Ennis into an information age hub has actually borne fruit. Don't believe me? Meet the online marvel that is Custy's Music Shop, a worldwide resource for Irish music that continues to operate from tiny premises in the back streets of the town. Culture Files' Louise McMahon reports. I'm walking through the streets of Ennis from Glore Irish Music Centre by the Franciscan Friary. The riches of Clare Museum to my left and through a narrow lane to Arthur's Row by historical buildings and winding streets that pre-Covid would have bustled to the sound of a market. The town is so still that my shoes almost echo as I pass independent retail shops. Shutters down. Down. O'Connell Street, looking at the spire of St. Peter and Paul's Cathedral, an overhead sign reads, Costi's Music Shop. I wander down Cook's Lane, and through the window is well-known connoisseur and purveyor of traditional Irish music, John O'Connor, sitting in his Aladdin's cave of musical instruments that hang from the roof and the walls by shelves of albums, crafts, DVDs, books, strings, things. He's sitting at his laptop with a pile of packages stacking up beside him. I'm curious to know how business is going online. So, I knocked. We've had an online presence here since the information is town. It appealed to Aircom or whatever it was called then. We were a willing guinea pig and they were more than willing to advance us as a small business that could be advanced into the world. So I suppose during lockdown, it's our saviour. People are still getting in touch, people are still buying behind closed doors, you know, getting stuff packed and getting it out to the post office in a way, so that's pretty good. The great thing about this enterprise as a website is they will always appear here and manifest at the other side of the counter. Because, I mean, you send out little packages like that. I've one here for the O'Neill Library, Boston College, uh, to Maureen Shea. She has been here, you know, when she ordered first, she wasn't here, and then she appeared one day. I'm Maureen Shea from Boston College. Okay, hey, how are you? So people always, uh, it, 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 it makes it very personal. Frances Custy, my wife, she was involved in banking and it was driving her demented. So she had to get some kind of safety valve exit out of that. And it was during the times when things were really bad, like economically wise in the 90s, early 90s. And she was advised, God, keep your safe job. But, she was never into keeping safe. So she set this up and I met her a few months later. I was coming back from working from abroad, a stint in the Arab Emirates and we just met, fell in love and then I was a kind of a teacher. I gave that up quickly. Frances has order, so she puts order into this whole shop where, you know, I just live in a, in a, in a constant confusion. Frances gets formed to that confusion. <laughs> The 
the only thing that it has impacted seriously is the fact that we don't have visits from musicians, we don't have visits from tourists, music tourists now, people who know their music. Part of the selling of the album, apart from on the shelf here, would be something I've started, God, it's about 15 years ago. The first one was Andrew McNamara, beautiful recording player from Tulla. Andrew came in and he sat in front of a very basic recording device I had. Now I'm a Luddite, I get advice from people, yeah do this and press that button, it should be okay and generally it's been okay. So Andrew sits down, he plays a, a set from his album. It's done all in one take, there's no edits okay, so no one gets a second chance here. So when he's finished his set, he explains what the album is and we just start talking. There's a lot of clear connection with it okay, will you tell me how the album came about, who's in the album? They're on our website, but mainly it goes through YouTube and it's viewed by hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. My family, are, uh, they're all in this uh, CD, uh, my three daughters, Fiona, uh, Kelly and Linda. The highest hit rate for any musician we've done is Bobby Gardner. He's a lovely accordion player, initially from the Spartan in Listunvarna. I think he's about 50,000 hits on that recording that he did. And then you look at Martin Hayes. Martin would have 20,000, and Kitty Hayes was a great concertina player for Moy. And she's got ferocious, uh, there's ferocious interest from all over the world about her because I suppose these are people like. They're like legends in, in blues music or something and you know people come by these and they're totally amazed by what they see. Uh, you can see whose flag is up there though. Mine will be the first time at the gate. into the thing like if there's a musician with the recording so we try and get as much traction out there to sell as much of the product as possible and this helps. Joe Foley's a great maker of bazookis and mandolins and even guitars in Dundrum in Dublin. His instruments are much sought after and there's a ferociously long waiting list. He'd be the main we'd say luthier with a world presence. But then we get old fiddles as well from abroad, maybe English fiddles or German fiddles, and they're the kind of fiddles at a certain price that suit traditional players, because traditional players are classical players with their purse. Generally you'd have 500 up to a couple of grand, maybe that's what they'd pay. So we have those as well, with these times it's very hard to source. Then you had the generic stuff, you know, the guitars, the, the, the cheaper fiddles, okay, the mouth orgs, you know, everything that makes a, a music shop work, we have it all here good, bad and indifferent. New releases, new, well I got one this morning, I was listening to this programme on TG Cahar, it's called Shro, meaning I suppose a floor, Shro on stream kind of a thing. They're bringing a lot of musicians, younger musicians in the traditional world of Irish and Scots together. So I saw this fellow the other night in Francis so we were really impressed with him, uh, Niall Hanna, he's a grandson of Geordie Hanna, famous singer up in County Tyrone on the shores of Loch Ney. He had four sons, two manhood grown and lovely daughters, three. I think music acts as a kind of a mollifier of all the, the ill that's been done to us because of this isolation. And when you listen to him, it fortifies the spirit, you know, and that's what music is about, really. For a lot of people, it gives kind of a peace, it gives tranquility, it gives satisfaction. I bid adieu 
to Aaron's lovely My father, he sold the second cow, and he borrowed twenty pound. It was in the pleasant month of May that we sailed from. A lot of people are holding off on albums because I suppose a lot of releases you make money back on launches. If you don't have the physical launch, you're really doing yourself out of a possibility of making some money back. We're a kind of a niche organisation for traditional Irish music. It's a lovely little symbiosis between us as a business and the most important ingredient of this shop is the musician because only for musicians we wouldn't have a business. We had no cares for we were young and free but she was swept away from me and now I walk alone if I could once more take you down by the flowing river if I could once more hold you my love John O'Connor there, and you can dip into Custy's World at custysmusic.com. What do you miss lists are so 2020, and yet missing stuff is still very spring-summer 21. For Maurice Gohan, it's taken this long even to realise one particular absence was indeed a lack, the absence of other people. It took a while to twig, because for our correspondent, company is not so much a double-edged sword as a pot scrub, pretty much all edges. As the great philosopher Britney Spears said, my loneliness is killing me. When lockdown started over a year ago, I was secretly delighted. I had spent so much of my life comparing myself to other people, jealous of their success, of their productivity, of their energy, that to get a universal time out felt like a relief. It was like a human hibernation, a way to recharge your batteries. Sure, in the beginning, we thought it would only last a few weeks, but as it continued into months, I still felt good. I was enjoying my time out. Getting to sleep until noon every day without anyone judging me for it. Watching six episodes of a Netflix show I wasn't even invested in. And taking leisurely naps in the afternoon. Getting to skip work parties. Which, by the way, is such an oxymoron. Because anything related to employment is never a party. I felt on top of the world. I had cheated the system. I had spent most of my life depressed, and now everyone else was depressed. But I was happy. I felt so smug with that contrast. 
It was like I was Jamie Lee Curtis switching bodies with her teenage daughter in the cult hit film Freaky Friday. Then the loneliness crept up on me. It took me five months of living by myself, completely isolated except for the cashier I talked to in broken Spanish in the local supermarket once a week, before I started to miss people. And when it came, it hit me hard and fast. Even if you are a person who enjoys their own company, who gets stressed out when you have text to respond back to, who hides in your bathroom when your roommate comes home, holding your pee until you have a bladder infection, you will still miss other people if you are robbed of them long enough. As human beings, we need other human beings. As John Don first said, no man is an island. And then Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers sang, Islands in the stream, that is what we are. A very clear challenge to the long accepted phrase. But I don't want to get too bogged down by whether we are an island or not. My point is, the very best thing about life is other people. And now, a year into COVID, eight months into living by myself, I miss other people. I miss annoying other people. I miss getting annoyed by other people. I miss screaming at a guy who skipped me in the queue at the post office. I miss arguing with a bouncer who won't let me into a club because I'm too drunk. I miss fighting with my landlord because the heating has stopped working and he said, just grab a blanket. And I was like, I've got two and I'm still bloody cold. To exist is to argue with other people. And God, do I miss it. What I would give to wake up at 9am on a Saturday to my mother hoovering my old bedroom saying, Oh, don't mind me. As she passively, aggressively hummed as loud as she could. Then when I angrily got out of bed, said, Oh, you're finally up. What would you like for breakfast? Or more aptly, what would you like for lunch? What I would give to scream at a cyclist as I walk through the pedestrian crossing. I have right of bloody way. What I would give to tell a boyfriend. Give me some space. The best thing about life is other people. Because they remind you of how much you love being alone. As human beings, we're not smart enough to think in absolutes. So we need reference points. We need to have an, oh, you're so annoying moment. So we can see what not annoying really is. I miss other people. Because without them, I can't feel happy being alone. I cannot wait until we're all vaccinated. So I can spend a weekend with the people I love so I can laugh and fight with them, but most importantly, leave them.
God, how good that will feel to leave them. Maurice Gohan there, looking forward to the hell of other people. If you spent the last week without consulting the shoe infosphere, it may have escaped your attention that rapper and social media star Lil Nas X has dropped, or put on sale, some sneakers created in collaboration with shadowy brand-come-viral art group Mischief, spelt without any vowels if you want to get googling. But hold on a minute, because Culturefile has called in once more shoe blogger and nephew of the programme James for news on the black and red trainers injected with a drop of human blood known to sneakerheads everywhere as the Satan Shoes. I mean, I can't say I expected this. Kind of completely came out of nowhere. I mean, drops on Monday don't ever happen. Do they not? It's all it's all Friday and Saturday. Um, right. I mean, you might get the occasional midweek drop, but even like a Monday night shoe release is, is just something different. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's... it's <laughs> is it? It's, it is. It is. I mean, maybe you'll get like some random colorway that they'll release on a Monday. But, you know, if Travis Scott is doing a shoe, if any other rapper is doing a shoe, it's releasing on a Saturday, for sure. Hello, I am James. I am a, I'm the resident sneakerhead. I've been into shoes for around five or six years. I run a Instagram account called at GCBC Sneakers, where I kind of post what I'm wearing and maybe talk about upcoming releases. I caught it bad just today. You hit me with a call to your place. Ain't been out in a while anyway Was hoping I could catch you throwing smiles in my face Romantic talking, you don't even have to try Every couple of days in the world of sneakers, there is a brand new sneaker that gets everybody excited and all the sneaker blogs and the shoe blogs write all about it. But for some reason, uh, when Lil Nez X got involved in the world of shoes or sneakers or trainers, as they used to be called, it seemed to be even more exciting and even more stirring for all the sneakerheads out there. Lil Nas X did a collaboration with a brand called Mischief and released a Nike Air Max custom shoe with this brand. OK, so there's a load of things you need to unpack for us there. First, what is a Nike Air Max shoe? Nike Air Max is the line, and the 97 is a particularly... Preferred by a lot of people, originally releasing in 1997, designed after uh, the look of a bullet train, hence the first colourway named Silver Bullet. It sort of has uh, ripples on the upper and a fully exposed uh, air midsole so you can see straight through. And so how, how would a collaboration normally work and how would a normal wrapper shoe company collaboration work? A normal wrapper shoe uh, company collaboration would work by Nike coming directly to that wrapper or maybe the rapper begging a bit to uh, to have that shoe collab, but it would be between Nike and the rapper or the rapper's team. But that's not what happened here. That's not what happened here at all. This is more along the lines of a custom shoe. So it seems that Mischief bought a rake of pairs of black Air Max 97s and have customised them by embroidering something on the toe on the outside and filling the Air Max bubble with, you know, allegedly one drop of human blood and then red food dye and water. And they have form for doing this kind of um, uh, customization of those shoes. Yes, and especially the Air Max 97. Back in 2019, Mischief released a Jesus shoe, as they called it, which was all white instead of all black, you know, Jesus. And 
The midsole was filled with holy water from the River Jordan, again, allegedly. I think that shoe kind of provoked sneakerheads, purists. The brand mischief is, you know, and they want me to say this, but they're sort of unpredictable in what they do because it can really vary week to week. So what else do they do? Well, it's not limited to shoes, although they did make a uh, Birkenstock out of old Birkin bags. They made a font called Times Newer Roman, which the font size is 5 to 10% bigger than regular Times New Roman. A lot of their stuff is just kind of to have it out there and make an idea into reality. I guess that a company like that must be always brought on board by people with something to sell and and they create notoriety. I mean, they're kind of like, kind of like an advertising company as much as a brand. Yes, definitely. And I think the, the founder was called Gabriel Whaley. He previously worked in Facebook, so I think he knows a thing or two about marketing and especially in how they release things is so so classic to, to what streetwear is now. They only they drop every second and fourth Monday of the month. So they have a huge countdown on their website, you know, counting down the days until they drop. I mean, they're obviously very clever at finding the emotion that people feel, that sneakerheads feel about uh, sneakers. They've managed to generate a huge amount of emotion in a sea of shoes because there are so many possible shoes in a month. This is the one that managed to get attention over that clamour. Yes, yes. Well, I think it's because a lot of what we see in the shoe world now is a lot of old colorways coming back of shoes or maybe a new collaboration with a rapper such as, I mean, the Travis Scott Air Max 1 was leaked this week. I say leaked, it was vaguely shown off in a in a Nike sneakers uh, event. What struck a nerve with some sneakerheads is that a shoe was genuinely kind of changed. A lot of popular shoes at the moment are Jordan 1s, which from 1985 and dunks which are from around the same time so seeing an actual modern original idea and spin i think has um really got people rolled up i believe it's sold out already and how many of them were there there were fittingly 666 now personally i wouldn't put them on on my feet myself but why not you don't like them <sighs> or you're afraid the devil would get you personally you know not my style it's a bit of a weird shoe for me. It's a bit of a weird message to endorse. So is its place out there no more than non-fungible tokens? Is its place out there just to become a thing that is traded at ever-increasing value and doesn't actually have any value? I mean, I don't see anyone wearing this shoe. I think it's one of those It's one of those shoes that, you know, collectors will get, you know, maybe a few collectors will get three pairs to show off, but just kind of ultimately put them in the glass case with the injecting of the air bubble with, the human blood and the red food dye and, and water kind of compromise the wearability. So I think they will just kind of be remembered as this this moment in shoes. Shoe blogger James there on the mischief little Nas X Nike Air Max 97, a.k.a. Satan shoe, which has dropped on a Monday. And finally, on this week's Culture File Weekly... <laughs> Of all the awesome tools in the arsenal of TV writer and producer Rob Long, there's one that must be deployed with the utmost care, used sparingly and only in the case of emergencies. The courtesy laugh. But how and where and why? These are the questions that Rob is prepared to answer right now. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. 
A few years ago, I helped out on a friend's television show, which means that I went to the rehearsal, I saw the show on its feet, and then went back to the office with the writer and creator and helped him, you know, punch up his show, which is a tricky thing, it turns out, because it's always hard to tell someone, hey, you know that joke you wrote? It doesn't work. And from his end, I suppose, it's always hard to tell a friend, hey, you know that joke you just pitched? It doesn't work. Especially when that friend is working for free. Now, there's an elaborate way around this awkwardness. I mean, there are, I've found in life, elaborate ways around everything. And it's what we call the courtesy laugh. It's sort of a mirthless bark that you do when you want to spare a colleague the humiliation of total silence, deserved total silence often, that greets one of his or her pitches. It's sort of like this. It's like, um, pretend you just said something not funny. And then I would do... <laughs> so it's an acknowledging laugh. I mean, you said something you thought was funny, and I recognize your effort with a false, hollow noise that says, essentially, I respect your efforts, and I welcome your input. But you see, professionals know that everything that comes out of their brains isn't going to be great, but they still expect, you know, a little courtesy laugh. Years ago, my goddaughter's preschool class held an open house event where parents and other significant caregivers, that's the school's words, not mine, they were invited to wander through the classroom and watch a short musical performance and take in a mini art gallery of paintings and drawings made by the little ones. It was excruciating, of course, but not because of the children. They were all hilarious and adorable, forgetting the words to the songs, dragging adults around the classroom, proudly displaying the class rabbit, that sort of thing. Pretty much every single kid was irresistibly charming. Though I guess if you can't manage to be cute as a button at four years old, you're really going to have a difficult road ahead. But what was excruciating, as anyone who knows any children will tell you, were the parents. Now, Maybe this is just a Los Angeles-specific phenomenon, something that's local to Hollywood, but parents these days are almost all entirely objectionable. They ooh and ah over every tiny object their kids show to them. They shower the little monsters with praise and gushes. They are relentlessly and cheerlessly positive and encouraging, so much so that even the four-year-olds see through it. I'm pretty sure I saw a few of the kids actually roll their eyes at their parents' unbridled enthusiasm. And when a certain dad applauded a little too loudly at a musical performance, which was, you know, let's face it, not great. I mean, it was a dozen four-year-olds singing off-key and a little fat kid at the end of the row banging a small drum. Had they charged admission, I'd have demanded my money back. But then a certain mother was heard to say with a swoon, my daughter sings like an angel. No, wait, she sings like a professional. I actually saw their daughter up there on the stage sigh in exhausted disgust. Please, Mom and Dad, she seemed to be saying with that sigh, get a grip on yourselves. We're four, and the fat kid is keeping the wrong time. In other words, don't try so hard with the courtesy laughs. Now, the courtesy laugher's heart, like those parents is in the right place, but if you go too far, you're missing the point. You're supposed to laugh just enough so that the person doesn't feel bad, but not enough for that person to feel good. The problem is, in television writers' rooms anyway, the courtesy laugh quickly evolves into a courtesy excuse, which is something we offer our colleagues when their material doesn't work. Leave it in, 
and see it at rehearsal tomorrow. Give it another day, we say when we're helping out on a rewrite and know that we won't be there the next day to see it, that some other poor volunteer will be. Maybe if he says it faster is another one we use, and it's corollary, maybe if he says it slower, and also, maybe if he says it louder. These comments belie the very nature of the courtesy laugh, which is to be polite, but still try to make the material better. Now, my favorite of these, which I heard not too long ago during a painful production week when nothing seemed to be working and no script fix seemed to be fixing, was a veteran writer who offered this courtesy excuse. Maybe they should repaint the set. It's too green. Green's not funny. Which is actually true, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was the scene wasn't funny and needed to be totally rewritten. You know, everything would be so much easier if the audience would learn to give courtesy laughs. And that's it for this week. Next week, we will try to sell out. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long. (laughs) Yeah, he does it better. Rob Long there, bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more facsimiles of mirth next Saturday tea time and in the Culture File Daily each weekday at 6.10 in Classic Drive. Till then, bye now.